Section 14 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12 After the Storm. Swift wrote more than one poem on the South Sea mania. That which was written in 1721 and is called South Sea is a wonder of wit and wisdom. It shows the hollowness of the scheme in some new odd and striking light in every metaphor and every verse. A guinea, Swift reminds his readers, will not pass at market for a farthing more, shown through a magnifying glass than what it always did before. So cast it in the southern seas and view it through a jobber's bill. Put on what spectacles you please, your guinea's but a guinea still. Other poets had not as much prudence and sound sense as Swift. Pope put some of his money, a good deal of it, into South Sea stock, contrary to the earnest advice of Atterbury, and lost it. Swift reflected faithfully the temper of the time in savage verses, which call out for the punishment by death of the fraudulent directors of the company. Antaeus, Swift tells us, was always restored to fresh strength as often as he touched the earth. Hercules subdued him at last by holding him up in the air and strangling him there. Suspended a little while in the air, according to the same principles, our directors, he admonishes the country, will be properly tamed and dealt with. Many public enemies of the directors gave themselves credit for moderation and humanity on the ground that they would not have the culprits tortured to death, but merely executed in the ordinary way. Walpole set himself first of all to restore public credit. His object was not so much the punishment of fraudulent directors as the tranquilizing of the public mind and the subsidence of national panic. He proposed one measure in the first instance to accomplish this end, but that not being sufficiently comprehensive, he introduced another bill which was finally adopted by both Houses of Parliament. Briefly described, this scheme so adjusted the financial affairs of the South Sea Company that five millions of the seven which the directors had agreed to pay the public was remitted, the encumbrances of the company were cleared off to a certain extent by the confiscation of the estates of the fraudulent directors, the credit of the company's bonds was maintained, thirty-three pounds six shillings and eight pence per cent, were divided amongst the proprietors, and two million were reserved toward the liquidation of the national debt. The company was, therefore, put into a position to carry out its various public engagements, and the panic was soon over. Many of the proprietors of the company complained bitterly of the manner in which they had been treated by Walpole. The lobbies of the House of Commons and all the adjacent places were crowded by proprietors of the short annuities and other redeemable popular deeds men and women who as the contemporary accounts tell us in a rude and insolent manner demanded justice of the members as they went into the house and put into their hands a paper with the words written on it pray do justice to the annuitants who lent their money on parliamentary security the noisy multitude we are told was particularly rude to mr comptroller tearing part of his coat as he passed by the Speaker of the House was informed that a crowd of people had got together in a riotous and tumultuous manner in the lobbies and passages, and he ordered that the justices of the peace for the city of Westminster do immediately attend this house and bring the constables with them. 
while the justices and the constables were being sent for sir john ward was presenting to the house a petition from the proprietors of the redeemable funds setting forth that they had lent their money to the south sea company on parliamentary security that they had been unwarily drawn into subscribing for the shares in the company by the artifices of the directors and they prayed that they might be heard by themselves or their counsel against walpole's measure the bill for making several provisions to restore the public credit which suffers by the frauds and mismanagement of the late south sea directors and others walpole opposed the petition and said he did not see how the petitioners could be relieved seeing that the resolutions in pursuance of which his bill was brought in had been approved by the king and council and by a great majority of the house walpole therefore moved that the debate be adjourned in order to get rid of the matter the motion was carried by seventy-eight votes against twenty-nine by this time four justices for the city of westminster had arrived and were brought to the bar of the house the speaker informed them that there was a great crowd of riotous people in the lobbies and passages and that he was commanded by the house to direct them to go and disperse the crowd and take care to prevent similar riots in the future the four justices attended by five or six constables desired the petitioners to clear the lobbies and when they refused to do so caused a proclamation against rioters to be twice read warning them at the same time that if they remained until the third reading they would have to incur the penalties of the act what the penalties of the act were and what the four justices and five or six constables could have done with the petitioners if the petitioners had refused to listen to reason do not seem very clear the petitioners however did listen to reason and dispersed before the fatal third reading of the proclamation but they did not disperse without giving the house of commons and the justices a piece of their mind many exclaimed that they had come as peaceable citizens and subjects to represent their grievances and had not expected to be used like a mob and scoundrels and others as they went out shouted to the members of parliament you first pick our pockets and then send us to jail for complaining the bill went up to the house of lords on monday august seventh and the lords agreed to it without an amendment on thursday august tenth parliament was prorogued the lord chancellor read the king's speech the common calamity said his majesty occasioned by the wicked execution of the south sea scheme was become so very great before your meeting that the providing proper remedies for it was very difficult but it is a great comfort to me to observe that public credit now begins to recover which gives me the greatest hopes that it will be entirely restored when all the provisions you have made for that end shall be duly put in execution the speech went on to tell of his majesty's great compassion for the sufferings of the innocent and a just indignation against the guilty and added that the king had readily given his assent to such bills as you have presented to me for punishing the authors of our late misfortunes and for obtaining the restitution and satisfaction due to those who have been injured by them in such a manner as you judged proper certainly there was no lack of severity in the punishment inflicted on the fraudulent directors their estates were confiscated with such rigour that some of them were reduced to miserable poverty they were disqualified from ever holding any public place or office whatever and from ever having a seat in parliament yet severely as they were punished the outcry of the public at the time was that 
they had been let off far too easily. Walpole was denounced because he did not carry their punishment much farther. There was even a ridiculous report spread abroad that he had defended Sunderland and screened the directors from the most ignoble and sordid motives, and that he had been handsomely paid for his compromise with crime. Nothing would have satisfied some of the sufferers by the South Sea scheme short of the execution of its principal directors. Even the scaffold, however, could hardly have dealt more stern and summary justice on the criminals, as some of them undoubtedly were, than did the actual course of events. When the storm cleared away, Aylaby was ruined, Craggs, the postmaster-general, was dead, Craggs, the secretary of state, was dead, Lord Stanhope, who was really innocent, was really unsuspected of any share in the crimes of the fraudulent directors, was dead also. Sunderland was no longer a minister of state, and the shadow of death was already on him. It was not merely the bursting of a bubble, it was the bursting of a shell. It mutilated or killed those who stood round and near. By the time of the new elections, for Parliament was now nearly run its course, public tranquillity was entirely restored. Parliament was dissolved in March of 1722, and the new election left Walpole and his friends in power, with an immense majority at their back. Long before the new Parliament had time to assemble, Lord Sunderland suddenly died of heart disease. On April 19, 1722, his death took place, and it was so unexpected that a wild outcry was raised by some of his friends who insisted that his enemies had poisoned him. The medical examination proved, however, that Sunderland's disease was one which might at any moment of excitement have brought on his death. Nearly all the leading public men, who innocent or guilty, had been mixed up with the evil schemes of the South Sea Company, were now in the grave. The field seemed now clear and open to Walpole. The death of Sunderland, following so soon on that of Stanhope, had left him apparently without a rival. Sunderland had been, to the last, a political and even a personal enemy of Walpole. Although Walpole had gone so far to protect Sunderland against the House of Commons and against public opinion with regard to his share in the South Sea Company's transactions, Sunderland could not forgive Walpole because Walpole was rising higher in the state, because he was, in fact, the greater man. Though Sunderland was compelled by public opinion to resign office, he had contrived, up to the hour of his death, to maintain his influence over the mind of King George. Fortunately for George, the king had too much clear, good sense not to recognize the priceless worth of Walpole's advice and Walpole's services. Sunderland tried one ingenious artifice to get rid of Walpole. He suggested to George that Walpole's merits required some special and permanent recognition, and he recommended that the king should create Walpole postmaster-general for life. Such an office, indeed, would have brought Walpole an ample revenue, supposing he stood in need of money, which he did not, but it would have disqualified him forever for a seat in Parliament. Perhaps no better illustration of Sunderland's narrow intellect and utter lack of judgment could be found than the supposition that this shallow trick could succeed, and that the greatest administrator of his time could be thus quietly withdrawn from parliamentary life and from the higher work of the state, and shelved in perpetuity as a postmaster-general. King George was not to be taken in after this fashion. He asked Sunderland whether Walpole wished for such an office, 
or was acquainted with Sunderland's intention to make the suggestion. Sunderland had to answer both questions in the negative. Then, said the king, pray do not make him any such offer, or say anything about it to him. I had to part with him once, much against my will, and so long as he is willing to serve me, I will never part with him again. This incident shows that if Sunderland had lived, he would have plotted against Walpole to the end, and would have stood in Walpole's way to the best of his power, and with all the unforgiving hostility of the narrow-minded and selfish man who has had services rendered him for which he ought to feel grateful but cannot. A far greater man than Sunderland was soon to pass away. From Marlborough's eyes the streams of dotage flow. These are the famous words in which Johnson depicts the miserable decay of a great spirit, and points anew the melancholy moral of the vanity of human wishes. Hardly a line in the poetry of our language is better known or more often quoted. Where did Johnson get the idea that Marlborough had sunk into dotage before his death? There's not the slightest foundation for such a belief. All that we know of Marlborough's closing days tells us the contrary. Nothing in Marlborough's life, not even his serene disregard of dangers and difficulties, not even his victories, became him like the leaving of it. No great man ever sank more gracefully, more gently, with a calmer spirit down to his rest. We get some charming pictures of Marlborough's closing days. Death had given him warning by repeated paralytic strokes. On November 27, 1721, he was seen for the last time in the House of Lords. He was not, however, quite near his death even then. He used to spend his time at Blenheim or at his lodge in Windsor. To the last, he was fond of riding and driving and the fresh country air. Indoors, he loved to be surrounded by his granddaughters and their young friends, and to join in games of cards and other amusements with them. They used to get up private theatricals to gratify the gentle old warrior. We hear of a version of Dryden's All for Love being thus performed. The Duchess of Marlborough had cut out of the play its unseemly passages, and even its two amorous expressions— the reader will probably think there was not much left of the piece when this work of purification had been accomplished, and she would not allow any embracing to be performed. The gentleman who played Mark Antony wore a sword which had been presented to Marlborough by the Emperor. The part of the high priest was played by a pretty girl, a friend of Marlborough's granddaughter's, and she wore, as high priest's robe, what seems to have been a lady's nightdress, gorgeously embroidered with special devices for the occasion. A prologue written by Dr. Hoadley was read, in which the glories of the great Duke's career were glowingly recounted. Some painter, it seems to us, might make a pretty picture of this. The great hall in Blenheim turned into a theatre, the handsome young men and pretty girls enacting their chastened parts, the fading old hero looking at the scene with pleased and kindly eyes, and the imperious loving old duchess turning her devoted gaze on him. So fades, so languishes, grows dim and dies, the conqueror of Blenheim, the greatest soldier England ever had since the days when kings ceased to be, as a matter of right, her chiefs in command. In the early days of June 1722, Marlborough was stricken by another paralytic seizure, and this was his last. He was in full possession of his senses to the end, perfectly conscious and calm. He knew that he was dying, he had prayers read to him. He conveyed in many tender ways his feelings of affection for his wife and of hope for his own future. 
At four in the morning of June 16th, his life ebbed quietly away. He was in his 72nd year when he died. None of the great deeds of his life belong to this history. None of that life's worst offenses have much to do with it. Marlborough's career seems to us absolutely faultless in two of its aspects, as a commander and as a husband. We can only give him praise. He was probably a greater commander than even the Duke of Wellington. If he never had to encounter a Napoleon, he had to meet and triumph over difficulties which never came in Wellington's way. It was not Wellington's fate to have to strive against political treachery of the basest kind on the part of English ministers of state. Wellington's enemies were all in the field arrayed against him. Marlborough had to fight the foreign enemy on the battlefield and to struggle meanwhile against the persistent treachery of the still more formidable enemy at home in the council chamber of his own sovereign. Perhaps, indeed, Wellington's nature would not have permitted him to succeed under such difficulties. Wellington could hardly have met craft with craft, and it must be added falsehood with falsehood, as Marlborough did. We have said in this book already that even for that age of double-dealing, Marlborough was a surprising double-dealer, and there were many passages in his career which are evidences of an astounding capacity for deceit. He was a great man, said his enemy, Lord Peterborough, and I have forgotten his faults. Historians would gladly do the same if they could, would surely dwell with much more delight on the virtues and the greatness than on the defects. The English people were generous to Marlborough, and in the way which, it has to be confessed, was most welcome to him. But if a very treasure house of gold could not have satisfied his love of money, let it be added that the national treasure house itself, were it poured out at his feet, could not have overpaid the services which he had rendered to his country. Marlborough left no son to inherit his honors and his fortune. His titles and estates descended to his eldest daughter, the Countess of Godolphin. She died without leaving a son, and the titles and estates passed over to the Earl of Sunderland, the son and heir of Marlborough's second daughter, at that time long dead. From the day when the victor of Blenheim died, there has been no Duke of Marlborough distinguished in anything but the name. Not one of the world's great soldiers, it would seem, was destined to have a great soldier for a son. From great statesmen fathers sometimes spring great statesmen sons. But Alexander, Hannibal, Julius Caesar, Charles Twelfth, Alexander Farnese, Clive, Marlborough, Frederick, Napoleon, Wellington, Washington left to the world no heir of their greatness. End of chapter 12